0: The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling. On this week's episode of Eye on the Triangle, we have a two-part special with the arts, featuring Jerome Davis from the Burning Coal Theater Company, discussing his company's performance of The Container. Afterwards, we got in touch with Anne Morris of the North Carolina Dance Festival, who will be performing in Durham mid-October. Hello, Jerome. Great to have you on air. So, I hear that you are working with a company that is currently doing a theater show called The Container.
1: We are Burning Cold Theater. We're about to start our 23rd season here in Raleigh. And we normally perform over at the Murphy School Auditorium. But this show is going to be done at the Contemporary Art Museum in downtown Raleigh, at CAM Raleigh. We have a very good relationship with with several productions there over the years. But this one is unique in that it will be actually performed in a shipping container. The play is about immigrants seeking asylum in the West and they're trying to get to the West through any means necessary, and that puts them into the hands of some human traffickers who load them up into the back of a shipping container and say, you know trust us, and we'll get you there. So the audience will be in the shipping container with the the actors during the course of this hour-long play.
0: So sort of like the Coyotes over in the Mexican-American border or other somewhat friendly-appearing human trafficker groups that, in the end, turn out to be mostly self-interested and not really caring about their cargo.
1: Right. It certainly seems like the cargo is the expendable part of that equation.
0: Hmm. We've seen that a lot with The Crossing of the Mediterranean lately, too.
1: Right. Well, I was going to say, this one was written by a British playwright, so it's actually about immigrants from North Africa and Afghanistan oh. trying to get to England. So it's a little bit arm's length from topic that seems to be on everybody's minds right now here in the U.S., But it is the same topic, it's just a different geographic location.
0: And so how does the show explore that topic? You talked about the shipping container, which is definitely a very unique way to set up your venue and set up kind of the framing of your play. But what is the, you know, what's the nitty gritty of it? What's the details?
1: Well, there are two different things. One is that each of the five immigrants have time to to be revealed as three-dimensional human beings. You know, we think of these kinds of immigrants as people who haven't got anything, but in fact most of the people who are able to partake of a journey like this are some of the ones that have a little bit more because they're able to afford to pay these traffickers to get them hopefully to the West. So we want to you know get rid of or disregard that stereotype that they're all poor people who basically have no control over their own lives. But the second thing, and I think the most important thing is that I love the idea of just putting our audience in there for an hour and let them have you know, just for one hour, a little bit of the experience of an existence like that, I think that's where the play will have be most impactful.
0: I bet the acoustics of the inside of a shipping container, the kind of metallic ringing of voices bouncing off, will definitely add something to play. And I really appreciate you trying to kind of uh, take apart the idea that uh, people who are going with these smugglers are poor a lot of these smugglers are out to make a profit and that's pretty much their only care so they wouldn't just take on anyone they'll they'll take on people with money and means
1: that's right uh, there's no guarantees and because it's done outside of the law there's no real way to to guarantee anything so they're really putting their trust into the hands of people that they don't know uh, people that have no no real reason to do right by them. They're basically trusting that those people will, will take care of them. And, um, and it's a, that's part of the horrific nature of, of this uh, you know, experience. And I think it's part of the reason why we would be you know, thinking more clearly if we tried to put ourselves in their shoes for a little, little while and think about how desperate their situation must be in order to put themselves into the care of somebody like that. The so three different countries are represented in the container, Afghanistan, Somalia, and then the, the Kurds uh, in uh, southern Turkey. And, so, and all of those places are places that have been ravaged by wars, waged largely by Western powers. And so, so these people are not just trying to get out so they can get to a better place and take somebody else's job. They're almost literally running for their lives, and, and so the play, um, you know, puts, put, as, as all good plays do, puts the characters in, in the play in a, a position, a, a sort of a hinge moment in their lives where they can uh, make one of two decisions, and the decision they choose is to live. They decide they want to live, and they are trying to, to do whatever it takes to make sure that they can live. And I think it's something we can all relate to if we think about it.
0: Yes. Oftentimes for these people, employment is the last thing on their minds. It's mostly just getting through that sea voyage. Now, I don't want you to give away too much of your play because, you know, people should be watching it. But what are these people running from exactly? Can you go into detail on that?
1: Sure. In Africa, we know very much uh, about the ongoing battles for uh, materials, you know, raw materials that exist over there, iron and diamonds and, you know, various uh, resources, oil. If you get, you get into the Middle East uh, and if in Afghanistan, uh, this uh, 20, you know, almost 20 year long uh, war that's been going on there with U.S. forces fighting against uh, the Taliban and uh, There's a number of uh, issues there. And in the third case, the Kurds, uh, you know, the Kurds were were promised support by George uh, H.W. Bush during the first Gulf War if they would rise up against Saddam Hussein. And then Bush went and cut a deal behind their back to let Saddam Hussein alone within the boundaries of his country if he would get out of Kuwait. And so when that deal was cut, the Kurds, who had risen up and were trying to overthrow Saddam Hussein, suddenly had no backing from the West. That's when Saddam began to gas the Kurds up in the northern part of the the country. And so they fled into the mountains of Turkey, and the Turks didn't want them because they're a different ethnicity, different religion, you know, the whole, whole, uh, uh, you know, culturally different. And so... um, So the Kurds that have been living in those mountains for for now over a a decade are, uh, you know, are the third part of that equation. But you could almost close your eyes and point on the map and find someplace where Western intervention has caused less than positive results, shall we say, in the world.
0: And geopolitics grand, folks. So why did you choose the Raleigh area for your show?
1: Well, Burning Coal is based in Raleigh, so we're performing for an audience, Raleigh audience, but it's, it's a story that's global, certainly could be done anywhere and has been done many places around the world. This is the playwright Clara Bailey's most produced play.
0: A lot of people think that this might be an issue that only happens overseas, but where there is a need for people to go places that they aren't necessarily wanted, there's going to be a supply of individuals willing to bring them there for a price
1: it does seem like that and in a place like north carolina which is still agrarian to a large degree there are opportunities for work once they get here so the the people from the southern borders tend to migrate to places like north carolina the climate is still fairly similar to what they're used to they're not you know, moving to Saskatchewan or something like that, but they're uh, coming to a place where A, there's work, and B, there's uh, at least uh, some semblance of the same weather that they're familiar with uh, in their life. And so I think those two things combine to make North Carolina and places like it uh, uh, attractive to them.
0: But there is a level of safety that comes with that kind of pastoral, agrarian area, not not the crowd and, and press of cities, but more wide open spaces.
1: There's a lot of humor in the play as well. uh, It sounds like a dire uh, thing that I'm describing to you, but there is a a good deal of humor in the play. Uh, People do tend, if you remember the old series MASH, you know, for instance, how much more dire could you be than than a mobile army surgical hospital? Yet the humor was what kept them sane through that. And this play has a lot of that kind of element in it as well. So so it's not uh, all grim. There's uh, there's something very human and very uplifting about the the effort to make this trip. And all we're hoping for is that our audience will imagine themselves in the shoes of these people for the hour that they're in the container uh, with our company.
0: And I really appreciate that you've injected that kind of aspect into it, or, or not just your play, but also the original uh, playwright injected that aspect of, of humor and humanity in there, because... Even when people are in these incredibly dire situations, that's what keeps them going. Hope, humor, and, uh, and togetherness.
1: I couldn't agree more. Well, Burning Coal is about to start our 23rd season, as I said. We're going to follow this play up with Camelot uh, back at, over at our uh, space, over at uh, 224 Polk Street, the big musical Camelot. And then uh, in January, we'll open a play called Tally's Folly which is a Pulitzer Prize-winning love story, two-character play. And then we'll close our 23rd season in April of 2020 with a play called Silent Sky, which is a very beautifully written play by Lauren Gunderson, who last year was the most produced playwright in America, whose name wasn't William Shakespeare. And Lauren has written a beautiful play about a true story about a woman who was interested in astronomy in the early part of the 20th century actually worked at the Harvard laboratory but was not allowed to touch the telescope because she was a woman, despite the fact that she could run rings around all of her um, fellow workers there in the laboratory in the field of astronomy. So it's a story about women's uh, suffrage uh, and, uh, and a beautifully written and funny play as well. So we hope you'll join us for The Container, Camelot, Tally's Folly, and Silent Sky to close the season next April.
0: Wonderful. Also, you mentioned that you've had 23 years. It's the 23rd anniversary, correct?
1: That's right. Starting with the container, we'll be beginning our 23rd season.
0: Looking back on your history with this entire company, the Burning Coal Company, how do you feel about your time here? How do you feel about what everyone has collaborated to make, what you've built?
1: Well, it's been fascinating to see the city grow. If you were around back in the late 90s, Uh, you would have seen a downtown area that was bereft of population after about 520 in the afternoon. You know, the the businesses would close. And I was was actually working at a law firm at the time up on the 18th floor of this building downtown. And I would look out the window and you could see the last car leave town. You know, you could say, there he goes. That's the last one. There's no more. And, uh, And people would go off to the suburbs and and live their lives and then come back the next day for their work and then go off again. There were, I think there were three restaurants on Faithful Street, one of which was a Biscuit restaurant and one of which was a Hardee's that had recently closed down. So I guess really only two restaurants. And now, you know, there are restaurants everywhere. They're great food, great different, you know, choices of, uh, of different menus uh, uh, from different parts of the world. And um, theater is proliferating. There's theater uh, everywhere now. And it isn't just that people are doing plays; they're doing interesting plays, like the one that I, I hope you found the container interesting—the one that I just described. But uh, but that uh, that kind of thing is now being done, you know, regularly, weekly, almost. There's some very interesting, or if not two or three, very interesting uh, pieces uh, going on. Uh, the Justice Theater Project up in North Raleigh, Honest Pint Theater, which does some really interesting stuff. Um we, uh, we have Little Green Pig over in Durham. Uh, we have Playmakers in Chapel Hill. We have the North Carolina Theater, Theater in the Park, Raleigh Little Theater. It goes on and on. The the North Raleigh Arts and Creative Theater, you know, there's just a theater everywhere. And, uh, and the colleges here, you know, Duke and NC State and, and UNC, I think, are a part of the foundation of that. They're producing some really good artists who are coming out of those programs and staying around for a few years, you know, and helping to... To beef up the, the pool of talent. So I think there's a lot of uh, action happening in the arts uh, in Raleigh, along with the, the restaurants and other kinds of businesses like that.
0: Thanks a bunch for repping the colleges, by the way, Jerry. You mentioned that you used to work in a law firm. What made you jump from law to theater? What brought you there?
1: Well, I decided money wasn't important. No, just kidding. Uh, Well, theater is what I've always wanted to do. I lived in New York City for about a dozen years, and I was an actor and a director in New York, and I worked a lot in regional theaters. And I knew that I wanted to start my own theater, and I knew that New York's real estate, out of the question, I would have spent the rest of my life trying to bridge the gulf between not having a building and having a building and I didn't want to spend all my time, you know, basically working on a real estate project. So I decided to move somewhere where the real estate was a little bit more accessible and where um, the, perhaps the kind of theater that I wanted to do was needed, not quite in such abundance as it is in New York. And so, so I, I came here knowing that I wanted to make burning coal, but also knowing that I needed to pay the bills while I was doing that. And after about two years in the law firm, I was able to go full time as burning colds artistic director yeah it's it's been nice
0: it took a practical approach to following your dream that's definitely admirable
1: i got to do it got to do it uh, people always ask me what are the skills that you need to run a theater and i always say uh, accounting and uh creative writing <laughs> <Helps>. <laughs> well sure you've got to be able to keep the numbers going but you also have to be able to make what you're doing sound interesting you know it is interesting but if you're not good as a communicator, uh, you're not going to be able to convince people of that. So, so yeah, I think those are skill sets that are very, uh, very helpful for young people. I also think history is very important. You know, I know that over at, um, uh, at the college uh, there, there's a really strong history program and, as well as at Duke and UNC. And, and I think knowing what came before and, and who came before and why they did what they did and how they thought, uh, is, is fuel to the fire for an artist. And if a, if a fire doesn't have fuel, it's not going to burn very long. And if an artist doesn't have fuel, they're not going to have anything to say, really. And too often we as artists sequester ourselves away in dark rooms and think, you know, making art is the only thing. But, but there's a whole world out there that must be um, drawn from in order to create art. And so the more of that you know, the better off you're going to be ultimately as an artist. So so pay attention in class. Just thank you very much for having me. This this kind of uh, thing is very critical for the art. Well, the website is burningcold.org, O-R-G, and the phone number if somebody wants to call for tickets is 919 834 for the container or any of our shows this year. The container opens on October 10th and runs through the 27th.
0: Everybody, that was The Container by Claire Bailey, and I'm Erin Kling with Eye on the Triangle, signing off. I'm Erin Kling with WKNC 88.1, Eye on the Triangle, and I'm here with Anne Morris.
2: Yes, I'm the Executive Director of the Dance Project, one of two Executive Directors, actually, and I'm the Director of our North Carolina Dance Festival.
0: Now, what is this dance festival? What does it mean to the people of the Triangle area?
2: Well, the Dance Festival is an annual performance that features North Carolina choreographers mostly working in modern and contemporary dance. We are headed into our 29th season in North Carolina, and every year we take these artists and we travel the state. And so we are gearing up for our fall season. We will be traveling to Asheville, Durham, and Greensboro this fall.
0: And what can the public expect if
2: they are to attend? Sure. Well, we always have evening performances. So in the Durham area, we will be performing at The Fruit on Saturday, October 19th. And we are also collaborating that Friday night. We're collaborating with Proxemic Media on a third Friday program that will be happening outdoors involving live music and live performance outside near the Durham Arts Council. So we're, we're doing a little community collaboration on Friday night and then an evening performance featuring, let's see, we've got five artists from across North Carolina in our Saturday night performance. And then we also like to do outreach activities across across the community wherever we perform so we'll have a community masterclass with one of our artists on Saturday afternoon and then we try to send artists into the local schools as well to teach classes or do short lecture demonstrations so that students have the opportunity to work directly with these professional artists
0: in our communique before we started this interview you mentioned that you can discuss what kind of dances people can expect what sort of things are the choreographers going to be exploring?
2: Well, we we really focus on uh, presenting modern and contemporary dance, and that has uh, that looks a lot of different ways. And one of the things that I find so interesting and exciting about our season performances is that even working within this one genre of dance, each dance looks very different. Every choreographer has a really different approach, Modern and contemporary dance really allows for a lot of inventiveness and exploration of movement. And so every choreographer is sort of coming up with their own movement style, their own movement vocabulary to explore the ideas that they're working on. And so it can be a little hard to describe what modern and contemporary dance looks like because there are so many ways it can look. But a uh, a lot of these choreographers are using movement as a way to as a way to comment on or explore or expose aspects of of identity, of culture, and of the world around us.
0: And how exactly do you explore identity and culture through dance?
2: Well, every choreographer has a different way of doing that. One of the one of the choreographers that will be performing in the Durham show is Vania Claiborne. She's based in the triad area. And she's presenting a duet called Brother, Bro, Brother. And it's a duet for two African-American men. And it really celebrates and explores black male friendship and humanity. It tries to kind of cut through some of the stereotypes that American culture has around black male identity and kind of strip that away. And she does it through movement, through movement relationships, movement motifs, And and really bringing these these two performers to life in a way that so that the audience can really relate to them.
0: And of course, your troupe is not local to the North Carolina area. How widely do you tour? Where have you been?
2: Well, we actually are based in North Carolina. Dance Project is a nonprofit in Greensboro, and we have other aspects to our programming. We have a studio in Greensboro that offers classes for kids as young as eighteen months, all the way through adults. We also do a lot of community events, primarily here in Greensboro, um, and and then our dance festival gives us a, a statewide presence. So we have we've toured to different places around. North Carolina throughout our history. And in the last several years, we've been primarily focusing on Asheville, Durham, Greensboro, and last year we were in Charlotte as well.
0: This is your 29th season. You've been doing this 29 times and it's it's about an annual thing, correct?
2: Yes, that's right. The artists that are chosen each year are different. We have an adjudication process every year where artists from across the state send in their submissions that they'd like us to consider. And from that our adjudicators and our curators select some of the highest quality choreography from those submissions and really think thoughtfully about how those pieces can can be performed in the different venues that we visit.
0: But as you're forging ahead to your big three O anniversary, and congratulations by the way. Thank you. Can you give me an idea of the the lengthy history your festival has had? Do you have any memories of of earlier sessions?
2: Yeah, well, our founder, Dance Project's founder, Jan Van Dyke, started the dance festival in 1991, and at the time, she was dance professor at the UNCG Dance Department, UNC Greensboro, and they had a brand new dance theater at UNCG, and she thought, you know, what a shame that that it's only our students that get access to this theater. Let's find a way to bring other performers in and a way to make some connections between artists working in other parts of the state. And that at that time, the dance communities around North Carolina were very isolated and were much more limited to academic settings than they are today. And so at the time, she invited some of her colleagues from Duke University to Greensboro to present work in the UNCG Theater. And it was so successful that after a couple of years, they added an evening to that performance that featured local Greensboro and High Point and Winston-Salem choreographers. And that continued to grow and the relationships continued to grow so that then, then this group of artists would also go to Meredith College in Raleigh and would go to, to UNC Charlotte and out to Asheville and Wilmington and up to App State in Boone. And so it really started to spread across North Carolina and, and that linked the dancers from the state. It created this network that is still really strong today. It's one of the things that, that we are really passionate about is making those connections between artists so that they can collaborate and they can promote their work in other settings uh, outside of their home community and they can be inspired by each other and learn from each other. So that sense of community is really continues to be really important to us as we as we move forward. And I've been working with the Dance Festival for about eight years and in that time we've seen a lot of changes um, in response to changes happening in the dance community as a whole in North Carolina. A lot of the dance activity is starting to really bubble up outside of academic centers so that, you know, for instance, the Durham dance community is is huge and is, is one of the most vibrant in the state. And so we wanted to be able to really tap into that momentum and that activity and that energy that was happening Outside of, outside of the colleges and universities. And we also were finding that out of interest and necessity, a lot of choreographers in the state were starting to make work in different settings. So rather than planning... A large-scale choreography that was meant for a really big stage. A lot of artists were starting to make much more intimate works that were intended for non-traditional spaces or in much smaller venues. So we wanted to be able to present those works well, as also. So a couple of years ago, we spearheaded a, a shift. We we moved all of our all of our performances away from the colleges and universities and really put them place them in the communities and we we mix up our venues so that we have some that are larger and more formal and some that are smaller less traditional spaces for watching dance and I, I find that 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 really changes the experience of going to a performance when you can be up close you can really hear the dancers and see the dancers and feel their energy too so that's been a really exciting shift
0: amazing yeah so you've taken it out of academia and onto the plazas and the parks. And by kind of narrowing the scope of these performances, you're pushing the art form in a different direction. You're you're making a lot of these choreographers take different perspectives and and different kind of drives in, in how they're making their work. Now, Miss Morris, to get a little more personal, you've said you've been working here for eight years. What does the medium of dance mean to you?
2: Well, you know, it it means a lot of different things to me. I I feel really feel really lucky to be in the position that I'm in because it allows me to bring so so many of my interests and so many of my passions together for me dance is a way to understand myself and to to connect with other people and to understand the world a little better as well you know there there's nothing quite like being in a dance class or performing on stage to really challenge you see where your limits are and and that that's a very exciting and thrilling position to be in but i also love now being able to help other people experience that to help other choreographers share their work with people and help audiences and students really tap into that uh, and i find when i go to performances i love to see work that is is really innovative, really saying things in a different way. And that helps me to, I don't know, think about the world in a new way. I find that, that dance has so much power to connect us and to, to cross boundaries. And so it's really exciting to me, both with the dance festival and with Dance Project's other programming, that we're able to find lots of different ways um, to connect people through dance.
0: Wonderful. I'd like to remind my uh, viewing audience, and of course plenty of people know this, but I think it bears mentioning, that before television, before radio, before writing, before you're putting pigments on stone cave walls, dance was how we communicated artistically to each other, how we brought communities together, and how we formed a a rhythm and a cultural identity in, in a lot of cases. I think you bringing that kind of artistic form to the local area is fantastic. Thank you, Miss Morris.
2: Oh, yes, our pleasure.
0: I'm Erin Kling with WKNC, Eye on the Triangle, signing off.
2: So for more information about our season as a whole and our performances in the Durham area, you can visit our website at danceproject.org slash festival for more information about all of our artists and all of our activities this season.
0: That's it for our show this week. Tune in the 29th of September for a chance to call and receive two free tickets to Burning Coal's Container Show, Hope to hear from you all then. Thank you to our live audience who has tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right. If you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants if you'd like to become a part of the Eye on the Triangle team. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show was... Safe Sacks by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, licensed in a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. Stay tuned for usual programming of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.